Hello, Play On Podcast listeners. Today we have two special guests, Sarah Enloe and Ralph Allen Cohen, on the podcast. Both are experts in the field of original Shakespeare practices, or as they might call it, Shakespeare staging practices. They are calling in today from the American Shakespeare Center in Staunton, Virginia. Sarah Enloe is the Director of Education at the American Shakespeare Center. Sarah is an editor and educator holding a Master of Fine Arts with an emphasis in dramaturgy, a Master of Letters with an emphasis in teaching from Mary Baldwin College's Shakespeare and Performance Program, and a BFA in Theater Studies from the University of Texas at Austin. Ralph Allen Cohen is co-founder and director of Mission at the American Shakespeare Center and Gonder Professor of Shakespeare and Performance. He is also the founder of Master of Letters and Fine Arts program at Mary Baldwin College. He established the Blackfriars Conference, a biannual week-long celebration of early modern drama and performance. Ralph is also an accomplished director, author, and editor. I'm here with Ralph and Sarah from American Shakespeare Center. Uh, thank you both so much for joining us in the Play On podcast. Uh, we know you're busy, and this means a lot that you take time out uh, to, to have a chat with us for about half an hour. We're delighted to talk to people at the Utah Shakespeare Festival. Some of our best friends are out there. Awesome. Uh, it, the Shakespeare community, it's amazing to me. I had no idea before I really got involved here uh, in the administration how tightly knit people that are into this stuff are, no matter where we live, in, in the country or, or in the world or, or what have you. It's, it's pretty incredible. It's an amazing network. Yeah, it's almost a family. It really it's is. A family. Yeah, it does. Before we get into the, the subject of original practice, I'm wondering if you could both give a, a, a brief kind of elevator pitch on the importance of Shakespeare, maybe specifically on why, why we're still uh, performing this guy's plays, you know, hundreds of years later. What is it? about Shakespeare that continues to make his work resonant, uh, regardless uh, of where we are in our current day and age? Well, I, I, I like to think that what made Shakespeare so good, I used to think it was because he was a terrific writer in the sense that he could invent things, uh, and he certainly did have great powers of invention, but I think it's more he was a great listener. I think he was a great observer. I think he... I think that it has to do with being a great mimic more than a that, than just a great poet. He was certainly a great poet, and I don't mean yeah. to say that he wasn't. But I think what distinguishes him from all the very, very great other writers of the period, and he was in an amazing period. Yeah. But what distinguishes him from Marlowe and from Johnson and Fletcher and Middleton and all those great guys, and they are great, is he listens... He listens so well, and he listens not just to words, but to silences. He has a sort of understanding of of the way we speak uh, and talk to each other, including the things we don't say. And, yeah. and that, I think, is why we still find him, uh, to use the word, I mean, find him contemporary. Yeah, absolutely. But I also think staging, you know, is great. And one of the mysteries to me because my focus has always been on, on the language. Yeah. Um, I'm, a, you know, my, my, my PhD is in English. Yeah. Uh, it's always been a mystery to me how something else must be going on as well, because in Germany and Japan and China and in, in all sorts of countries uh, that do not 
you know, produces plays in other languages, he's still great. Yeah. So obviously, in addition to the things I just said, there's something else going on, a kind of a real centeredness about the way people are and about his ability to let, to write characters that leave room for the actor. Yeah. And I think that's another great thing. I think mine is related very much to what Ralph has said, and that is that he is a man all in all. Uh-huh. He is a man who knows his craft. He is a man who knows how to work with the the technicians who will bring that to life. Yeah. He is a man who recognizes humanity for what it is and and paints it without apology. And um, and that leaves us to continue to discuss what's what's on the stage when we when we mount his plays. It gives us continuing points of entry that yep. um, that continue to fascinate us and and draw us to those plays because he he was a, a guy doing a job and knowing how to do it well, which I yeah. think a lot of students, um, they think he was this poet to use the most exaggerated. Yeah, this um, shut-in writing by candlelight all night and then, yeah. Yes, yeah, and instead he is a, a person who knows how to do his job well and does it well with so much insight into technique and, and craft that we can still interpret. Awesome. So then both of your interpretations of, of who Shakespeare was and why his work is still resonant, it, it really, it's not as much about the language as it is about, uh, here we have a gentleman that, that was really putting on a production, just like we put on a production now. There was an awareness of all sorts of moving parts, right? An awareness of people, not just of the things people say, but the things people do. An awareness of history, of of context, all these things. And, you know, in, in my Norton anthology, I read a lot about how pretty the words are, right? But I, I don't remember reading a lot about how amazing this guy must have been at helping actors and helping technicians put on incredible entertainment. Yeah. Well, he was, of course, an actor. And yeah. I, I want to be real clear that I think silence is a part of language. Yeah. So when I say, you know, he, he's... He's a great mimic. I, I mean, he's 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 great at hearing the kinds of words people would choose. You know, it's a funny thing. I was one time challenged by a, a woman who is a, had a PhD in Russian, a PhD in German, uh, and uh, and a PhD in French. She was French, actually. Wow. And when I said something about well, I, I something disparaging about. Uh, German as a, po a language of poetry, she said, "You can't show me, you can't show me a really euphonic line in Shakespeare." And I, I, I had a hard time yeah. because poetry for him was not poetry so much as thought and 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 the right word. And again, I think letting the actor in. I, I always think there's there's a beautiful incompleteness about Shakespeare that invites us in. Yeah. What what is it? Uh that drew both of you to um, to this allure, to this idea that there's all this stuff we maybe don't know about Shakespeare, and the only way we can really get to the bottom of it is to maybe try to do things more like he did things in, in his era. Well, it's a pretty logical. I always think it's really, I find it kind of odd that people think it's strange. I mean, if, if you were, if you were uh, Good answer. the game of 
baseball. Yeah. And you invented the, the rules for baseball. And then somebody took took your rules and go, God, I love this game. It's so exciting. Yeah. And then it, the only thing I'd like to do, instead of putting it on a diamond, why don't we put it on a bowling alley? <laughs> uh, and that, that to me, you know, if you want to understand what Abner Doubleday or whoever was thinking when he invented the game of baseball, yeah. you ought to try to use the same, the same configurations that he does. I always like to think, as much as possible, that that if you're doing Ibsen, if you're doing Chekhov, yeah. if you're doing Churchill, no matter who you're doing, that you you kind of want to hear the you kind of want to know what they that the writer had in their mind. And and now of course they write it down in the elaborate stage directions. Yeah. Uh, but what are they seeing? What what stage are they seeing? What how big an audience are they seeing? Uh, uh, you know. I won't go costumes, so you guys are great at costumes, better in many ways than we are when it comes to to you know the the, the sort of staff you've got to do that. You've got just the most magnificent costume collection. But you know, to what extent was Shakespeare thinking? Well, now yeah. uh, you know a whore is going to come on stage, and she will look kind of like this, and everyone in the room will know this is who that character is. And I won't need I won't need people to talk about her. You know, yeah. I can call it. I can call her uh, Doll Common, or I can call her Doll Tear Sheet, or whatever I want to call her. Yeah. Uh, it will be, and but she'll look like this. So I think playwrights have things in their minds, and I and I think part of any theater company's job, at least one of their jobs, is to try yeah. to get at that. And this is one way to do it, Sarah. And that's something that um, I say to a lot of the groups that come to visit us at ASC is, you know, we. We admire so much this man's writing, but we rarely think about what his brain was doing on stage yeah. and how he's incorporating that into the gorgeous text that we've been gifted. So when we think about his writing, we also want to credit the genius that he must have had for how it came to life. So yeah. that's I mean, if you ask me what drew me to it, actually, interestingly enough, I would say the first production that I saw done this way when I left the Comedy of Errors with my face sore from smiling, when I left Hamlet with my chest sore from holding back weeping, and that kind of visceral experience that I never thought was possible mm-hmm. until I got into a room where the actors could and did acknowledge the audience and could and did bring us into the story. Yeah. So um, the seeing is believing, which is something that we often say around these parts. Yeah, if I, if I could add something comes right out of what Absolutely. Sarah just and which I didn't say before, because when we talk about what Shakespeare was imagining, uh-huh. I most theaters forget that he was imagining an audience and seeing it. I mean, he was an actor who stood on a stage at two in the afternoon on the Globe stage, surrounded by 3,000 people, uh, and no actor who does that would ever imagine a play in which you pretend that the audience isn't there. Absolutely. You put any any actor in that circumstance and and then turn him into a playwright, and, and he has to make up plays, He's always going to imagine the audience, and if there's one thing I think we we care so much about, and you guys do it too. I mean, I've been I've been at your shows, and I know that before it gets dark, 
you know, the, act, the actors do acknowledge that there's an audience there. Absolutely. I, I cannot yeah. imagine. I, I, I don't, I, I'll just be honest, I don't enjoy productions of Shakespeare when one of the three important uh, legs of the three-legged stool is gone, and that would be the audience. Yeah, uh, so that's I, fascinating. I, you know, I, I think that, I think it's kind of odd, in a way, that uh, that this is a, in any way a controversial idea that you ought to be able to to acknowledge that there's an audience there because the plays do it all the time. Yeah. Oh, I don't, I don't mean to suggest it's controversial, but um. No, no, no. I, I didn't mean. Yeah. You. I mean, uh, certainly we have people. General say, oh, perception. Oh, oh absolutely. Sorry. There is yeah. there is a sense though, right, that you are um, bucking from a trend, not an older trend, obviously, but sort of that twentieth century trend of, or even you know late nineteenth century trend of when we go to the when we go to the playhouse, the lights go down, and we know we know to shut up, and we know to focus on what's going on on stage. There's a little bit there's a little bit of an expectation and a, and a you know there's a performative aspect, and I'm being devil's advocate here, you know, there's a performative aspect to being in the audience in the dark, uh, in a way, you know, it's not interactive, but there is a code, there is a way to behave, there is a way to be a part of this show, which is basically don't ruin it for others. But how, how have you found what you do, um, the, uh, to coin the famous phrase, we do it with the lights on, how have you found that changes the way an audience absorbs Shakespeare? Does that, does it lessen some of the barriers, some of the anxieties people have? Or, or have you seen some people uh, have, you know, react oppositely? Uh, when we first started doing it, uh, back in 1988, uh, and we were a young group, uh, well, they were young, out of, out of college, and most of them were my students. Uh, and, and when we started doing it, people loved it, but they, they tended to think that it would only work for comedy, that if you can see... And acknowledge the audience. Oh yeah. You can't. Then you can't be serious. That that you can't. They can't do the tragedies. I mean, that, and partly I think this this criticism of us when we first started was based on the fact that we were a young group, and so I think that's also that was also sort of part of that package of well, they can do comedy really well, but 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 with the lights on, they can't they can't do tragedy. And I think one of the great things. That happened, and it will, and it owes a lot to the Blackfriars, yeah. because people took us so much more seriously in that beautiful room. Uh, but it was there that I learned that actually tears are at least as um, contagious as laughter, and that and that all it takes is seeing a couple of people begin to cry. And you've been at a wedding, you've seen it, where everybody's like trying not to cry, and then you see somebody cry. Absolutely, and, and it, it, you know, so. So for, for me now, I, I do feel, and you, you said 19th century, and you're, you nailed it. I mean, but it's 19th century, late 19th century, and it was just about the time movies started. Yep. And so we redefined what being an audience member was at that time. Uh, and I think we're going to discover, as our television screens get better and better, and you can watch movies with the lights on more and more because the, you know, the quality is so good, I think I think we're going to look back at the 20th century as the odd century that banished audiences, and we're going to think a lot more about plays being like they used to be, except for this one odd century where the audience was very much a part of the show. That's fascinating. Concrete data going on that question. Yeah. We also had this over a number of years to do surveys of our audience that ask the question. 
when did you start to feel comfortable with the language, um, and those kinds of details that help you to know how the audience is actually feeling. He also taught an audience studies class for a number of semesters in our master's program, and that reveals that the audience relaxes and becomes accustomed to the way we perform very quickly, and it actually their Shakespeare instead of the Shakespeare that their English teacher or their societal commitment to culture told them they should enjoy. Yeah. Um, you see it particularly well when you attend a student matinee, when you see those active bodies come in and take their seats and are squirmy and itchy and, and can't get settled um, until the first few words are spoken and then they are absolutely magnetized and they can't turn away. The stage is drawing them in. And then we hear from some of those students, you know, it's not a brag, but you ruined Shakespeare for me. I, I can't <laughs> watch it dark. I, I went to see it at such and such theater and I don't, it wasn't Shakespeare to me. So there's, you know, I think we do, we do find when we go on the road still because we do have the tour that yeah. still goes out um, that there's a bit of a lag, a little bit of, we call it training an audience in the education department. Yeah. Kind of have to break them in gently. And the way that our artistic department approaches that is through um, extensive use of the house and um, and breaking down barriers in ways that audiences are more accustomed to at Broadway or, or wherever mm -hmm. you might. Yeah. And then shaking that up. But I think the biggest thing that we may not have mentioned is that the Blackfriars and the Globe are thrust theaters. So yeah. that you're not just seeing the actor, you're watching, and Ralph mentioned this when you see someone cry, um, if you're watching audience members give in and cry or laugh or uh, scowl or um, or be surprised, and each one of those reactions doubles or triples your experience of the play. Oh wow! We have we'll leave the playhouse talking about the audience member on stage left who you know talked back or, or laughed so loud that um, <laughs> the actor had to stop, and and those kinds of things that actually do make you feel like you're one with the show. That's incredible. It, it sounds like the way you you present it um seeing other people experience the emotion of what's happening on stage kind of functions like an amplifier right a oh my goodness it's an amplifier it's spotlight uh I, I, we also use we do use the balcony uh as shakespeare did we will put people up there we don't do enough of it yeah uh, because, uh, because of the way we designed it it made it a little inconvenient but when you've got uh, a room full of people that everyone can see, and their eyes are focused, you don't need a spotlight. They're all focused. You know that you you know where to look. Yeah. I also love is one of the things talking about students. When when people are young kids, a lot of times we'll get parents who bring their children to do their kind of cultural tax. Yeah. You know you got you got to do this parent to Shakespeare. Exactly. And one or two of the kids will decide to sit on the on the gallant stools that we have on stage, and and then I've, I've had the experience of watching the proud parent in the in the you know in the stalls, uh, watching the proud parent, watching his kid on stage, watching Shakespeare. Yeah. And then seeing them notice that the kid is really really interested in the story 
in front of them and then see the eyes of the parents begin to shift to the story themselves. In other words, they came in there, it's their, it's their kids who are teaching them how easy Shakespeare is. Yeah. It's their kids that are showing them by, 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 by just their looks and their intent looks. I mean, I, I know you, you would know that, that any scene you ever direct, it's not just the people talking, it's the people listening that makes the difference. Absolutely. And, and when you are doing a scene in the Blackfriars, and you have 300 listeners that everyone can see, it makes you listen as well. Absolutely. So I think it is an amplifier and a spotlight. And oh. I love that word. We're always trying to look for technological um, ways to talk about how this craft is still so present. And mm -hmm. audiences, amplifier certainly puts us into that realm. Yeah. Right. That's, so we've been, we've been talking, and I apologize, we've been talking about original practices for a while now, but we haven't, I haven't really uh, looked it in the mouth yet. I'm wondering if, if both of you could go into a little detail. Uh, I know there's kind of a rhetorical answer of what original practice is, uh, but I'm wondering if you could give maybe a little bit more detailed answer about what that is for someone that maybe hasn't been part of this dialogue before. Uh, specifically, like what goes into it? I mean, the repertory model, um, the rehearsal schedule, all these little bits and pieces that you're trying to recreate uh, to produce Shakespeare in a way more true to its original form. I do want to address what we do to create it, but I also want to make sure that Ralph gets to talk just a little bit about the term original practice as it relates to us. Absolutely. We don't tend to identify by that term. We tend to say we do Shakespeare's staging conditions. Okay. And, um, and that is partly original practice, but Ralph has the history of us the word because he was on in some meetings in which the word was discussed at length and he has a lot of insight well, into its well, value and its and its <clears throat> downfall. Well, gotcha. well, I mean, original practices is a term. Uh, it's a perfectly good term, but like any term, it, once you once you put it out there, then it then it's subject to uh, debate. And the word original sounds like we know what originally happened. Yeah, there's there's know. some baggage there. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot of baggage, and especially for academics and. Uh, and so we officially use staging conditions, but it, with my scholar hat on, I'm quite happy to talk about original practices. The thing about original practices or Shakespeare's staging conditions that I think I have learned is that every time we try something we think was quaint, isn't that quaint? They stood to see a show. That's so quaint. <laughs> You know, how patronizing. And, globe, and we discover if you've been to the globe, you don't want to be in those seats. You want to stand. You can move around. It's much more. It's much more fun. You listen better. Uh, it's easier to deal with your beer. Uh, there are lots of other <laughs> things about standing. Uh, we learned. We, isn't it quaint? They stood in the rain when it rained. It rained. And that, that's so quaint. And then we discover that when it rains at the Globe, the actors love it because the audience feels that together they're doing something. They are, the audience is inconvenienced in a way that challenges their thinking, makes them feel one with the actors, so there's even something good there. Uh, isn't it quaint they do it with the lights on? Well, I, that's so not quaint, that's so modern, that's so right that I don't even want yeah. to talk about that one. <laughs> but there are other quaint things we've tried to explore. We have tried to, and I put quotation marks around the quaint. Absolutely. Tried to I think that's coming through. The very, very brief uh, rehearsal periods that they had. We have tried to explore maybe the most revealing thing of all. We've tried to explore the very quaint idea that actors 
put the show on without a director. Now, isn't that quaint? Think of that. Somehow these guys were enough of artists not to want somebody telling them what to do, do it themselves, get the show up. So we've played with that. And every time we explore what we think of as quaint, we learn that it works really, really well, that it's, that it's efficient, that it gives agency to actors who wouldn't yeah. have it. We have people who come and work here and who want to come and work here mostly when we are doing our Actors Renaissance season where they do their own, they, they, they do their own shows without a director. And, and and have a prompter. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, and isn't it quaint that they had a prompter? And yet we discover that if we look at the records, those shows, they sold for twice as, that first show would sell, uh, the ticket price would be twice as much because audiences love the experience of that freshness and our audiences get that. So every time we look down on them, I call it uh, chronological chauvinism. Every time, <laughs> We, we look down on them because they're dead and old and whatever, and we're alive. Yeah. It's also technological chauvinism. Yeah. Uh, we, we're surprised and ashamed because, in fact, they knew exactly what they were doing, and they did it extremely well, and, 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 and there's some value in every bit of it. And just uh, to give you a comprehensive list, Ralph has already talked about how we've embraced some of the rehearsal conditions. Mm -hmm actors who self-direct themselves, a short rehearsal period, and our actors renaissance season and in other seasons now, our actors use cue scripts, so they don't get their full, they don't get the full play, they get... Oh, wow. And some of them really enjoy that so much that they started creating their own parts when they go into the regular season. We've talked about universal lighting, which is one of the big ones. Uh -huh. We pay deep attention to scansion and that the iambic pentameter as, an, as a way of Shakespeare giving instructors about emotional choices, about words to emphasize, all of those things. And also to the rhetoric, Ralph is really fond of looking at what rhetoric can tell us about characters. Um, we double our, our actors, our cast are 11 to 12 actors, and we do uh, plays as big as 1 Henry VI. Um, oh, wow. That, that few people. We also gender cross-cast. We do have females in our company, but um, females play males and males play females. Mm -hmm. We um, aim for two hours traffic of the stage. We do um, all of our sound effects are acoustic, and we also really value music. But the music that we play is not Shakespeare's music. We're not looking at music that's 400 years old. We actually play Lady Gaga and... Um, <laughs> music that you know when you walk into the space because we think that that's what Shakespeare's audience was getting with music that they knew. Contemporary um, music, yeah. Our uh, costumes play the biggest design role in our productions, just like we believe they would have in Shakespeare's period. Yeah. That was by far the largest cost uh, of the, the, that labor uh, was, was costume. And uh, yeah. so... Uh, and I know how much you guys care about that. And so... Um, it's a big deal. <laughs> that's kind of the, the stuff that we really um, hone in on and pay attention to. But we're also constantly looking for more information. We host a conference every other year that, you know, gives us an opportunity to hear what other scholarship is happening in the world and yeah. one of our contributors Tiffany Stern um, keeps feeding us ideas we got to 
world premiere of puppet play version of Hamlet last year because she was working on an idea that when it went to Germany, it may have been in puppet play form. So things like that that wow. are and informative and teach us, again, when the quaint hits the road, we've got something really good happening. Yeah, absolutely. And Does it ever, um, it, Sarah, as an education director, do you ever find yourself, and this is an honest question, I don't mean uh, this to come across the wrong way, but do you ever feel conflicted between the idea of, of teaching Shakespeare or, or and teaching Shakespeare the way Shakespeare did Shakespeare? Does that make sense? Is, is there a sense that you're re-educating people or are you just laying it out there and let, you know letting people bring whatever assumptions they may have about theater or, or classic theater uh, with them? Or is, or is there some mechanism by which um, you tell people, uh, you know, we're not just doing it, we're, we're trying to do it this way because of all these reasons. Well, we, uh, all of our programs are based on the work that we do on the stage. Mm -hmm. So go in, we go in with the assumption that the participant probably has heard about Shakespeare in a different way than we're going to be talking about Shakespeare. Yeah. So we start at, at the ground level of Shakespeare's staging conditions and go up from there. And in that way, we feel that we're really giving the text back to the participant. Yeah. Because one of these methods, if you think about it, an actor who is putting on a production without a director is able to see in his text all of the information that he's going to need. And we feel that what we haven't got is the glasses to see that information, but that ed ASC education can put those glasses on our participants' faces, and they can suddenly begin to understand how to break the text down and take it back from the scholarship. If you, if you don't mind my saying, no, that. no, 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 that's awesome. It doesn't have to be ivory tower Shakespeare. It's Shakespeare for performance, and how can we help them to see the performance when they see the page and understand that? You know, by just a few little precepts, the play comes to life in a different way, in a yeah. way that we feel ultimately is much more graspable. You know, the the book uh, Actor Prepares and Actor Prepares, right? Yep. Uh, it's it's really nothing is better a better way to teach Shakespeare than to make everybody in little pieces have to think like an actor does when they're looking at those words. And, Absolutely. And our job is, is to encourage that, to show how much fun that is, uh, and also to try to get them up to pace a little bit on some of the clues. As, uh, and, and I don't like the word clues because it's like, there's this great mystery, and if we get what the mystery is, that, that's not exactly what I mean. Yeah. But there are six, the man was sitting in a tavern somewhere writing, writing these things, hearing patterns as he spoke, hearing inflections, he was not going to have the opportunity to direct it. Uh, he might be able to, he might have been good friends with them and could say, oh yeah, I see him as sort of this way. I mean, he might have done that, I don't know, but, yeah. but probably, mostly, was writing things in a way that, the, that readers that he knew, people he could imagine himself, would sort of hear the syntax, hear the figures of speech, no, be able to rely on the iambics and the irregulars when they're irregulars, and have fun with it that way. So he's yeah. doing as much as he can that way. And and if we can get people there, and we do get people there, they have such a good time 
Uh, and it doesn't take, we, we're, we're very much about take the small thing and, and, and really enjoy the small thing. We're not about, you know, you have to know the whole play when we do workshops or, or anything like that. But we really yeah. believe in performance is the best educator. Uh, by, that's what we believe. That if we can get people understanding those things in the form for which they were written. I mean, yeah. let's face it. The first, the people who's going to read those things first were actors. Yep. If we can get them there, they have such a good time. Uh, and, and, and the language no longer is hard because they're no longer worrying about the language. They're worrying about what to do with the language, and that is really a different subject. Oh, and thank you so much. This has been so informative. And I, I'm going to go start digging in Google to learn more about all the things uh, you just opened the door to. Awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it, Ralph. Thank you, Sarah. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Play On Podcast. We will catch you next time from right here at the Utah Shakespeare Festival in Cedar City, Utah.